All right, guys, we're live and Santa. No, mate. Who's Santa? No. no, it's just me, mate. Bill. Oh, 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 oh you were confusing me. My my childhood came racing back. <laughs> G'day, Bill. How are you? I'm pretty good, Craig. Yourself, Todd. Good, good mate. Good. All right, guys, this is um, Aussie Craft Distillers shooting the shit. And for those that don't know, this is our little wee uh, podcast with Luke, uh, the Todd, and myself. And what we do is we talk to fellow craft distillers and people in the industry. And tonight, it's our end of year big bash. And we're, we're honoured to have the man himself, the godfather of Australian whiskey, Mr. Bill Lark. G'day, Bill. G'day, Craig, Todd and Luke. It's good to be here, mate. Good to be here. Hello, you. hello. It's, it's, uh, this is awesome that, that you're here. We've got a lot to talk about and uh, looking forward for a good session. So um, let's rip into it, eh? So just, we'll start just before, with... I was going to say, just, just before you start, yep. wearing that hat and reminded me of a, a few years back, I went to China to a trade show and I... I set up a little stand just for three days, giving away whiskey to see what they thought of it over there. And yeah. all day long for three days, all these lovely Chinese people would come up and want to give me a big hub and uh, hug and rub my belly and get their photos. <laughs> and all the other stall holders are going, oh, not a bloody game. How come you get all the hugs and the bloody cuddles? And I said, I don't know. They're just human. I, I, and then at the end of the three days, my interpreter guy said to me, Oh, Mr. Lark. I said, oh, they're very nice people here in China. He said, oh, Mr. Lark, uh, they are calling you Santa Buddha because of your white beard and your fat tummy. Santa Buddha. That's a bit of a bit of a bit uh, an amalgamation of uh, things going on there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, you can start right, let's, let's start with what everyone is drinking. So, Bill, what, what do you got in the glass tonight, mate? Well, just to surprise you all, I, it's not a lark or it's not even Tasmanian, but it is from my old mate, Dan, up in northern New South Wales. It's his highwayman batch 10 that he wow. gave me personally when he was down here in Hobart for my birthday. And I thought this is a great chance to, a uh, great time to uh, honour Dan and, uh, and have his drink. And I must say, I've been, I've been actually hooked up for a little while, Craig, and I've been enjoying a few tastes and it's bloody good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Yeah, very that's nice. Awesome. Prepared, not so much. Yeah, always prepared, not so much. So, um, yeah, the mainlanders are—we're uh, kicking it along a bit now, aren't we? We—we—we're we, uh, pretty pleased with how things are going on the mainland. Well, you should be. There's some really good whiskey coming out of New South Wales, in particular. Yeah, mm. uh, it's good to hear. We—we we have a bit of a bit of a running joke with the the Tasmanians. Yeah, we we say. Um, yeah, there's Australia and there's and there's Tasmania and there's Tasmania sort of pulling away from Australia and we're going steady on, boys. The mainlanders, are, the mainlanders are doing okay here. <laughs> it's it's all Australian whiskey. <laughs> I, 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 I never doubted it, Craig. Never doubted it. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So um, we're drinking. What are we drinking to start with? We've got some Hobart uh, whiskey. You've got some. Sir John Jarvis has sent us some samples, which we're going to be enjoying a bit later on. Beautiful. I really like the way that Hobart do their samples in those little test tubes. Yeah. I think they're great. 
They are they're cool. not the ones we piss in, is it? Yeah, they do. Just hold them up. Little sample. Yeah. <laughs> We're also drinking a great New South Wales whiskey. Yes. Another good that's, one. Yeah, mm. that's that's Bernsey and, and, and Michelle. Cracker. Still builders Is and whiskey makers and gin makers. So uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, go for that. So that's what we've got on the glass, and it's the tawny, isn't it? We're drinking? No, the Apera. Oh, the Apera, is it? We're on the Apera. Okay. Luke, what do you got in your glass, mate? Um, well, I started a little earlier, and uh, I haven't quite finished <laughs> my first early. glass, uh, which is not oh, Australian, but it is very special. Oh, quite I like it wow. a lot. It's the, uh, the Waterford, which is Irish, yes, um, but it's bloody brilliant. The uh, the Hookhead uh, Edition 1.1, which Crafty kindly uh, picked up one of the last bottles that are actually here in Australia. Yeah. Wow. And it's so good. Oh, my God. But I am going to be moving on to um, one of my current favourites, the King Lake. Well, I, cool. I haven't tried that. I haven't tried no. that. Well worth well worth it. Really, really good. Just, I could chug that back up all day, every day. Fantastic. Yeah. Very easy drinker. So that's oh, as soon as I finish my, my Waterford, I'll be moving on to the King Lake. Yeah, nice, nice. That's that's probably a good way to start. Actually, I'd like I'd like to cover off that. So, um, with whiskey making in Australia, Bill, mm -hmm. um, a lot of people have come the, the line of. The, the traditional Scottish approach of just going with a, a Pilsner malt or, or a pale malt uh, and, and putting a lot of emphasis on, on the barrels and, you know, barrels driving big flavor, flavors yep. into it, right? Yep. And there's the other side, which uh, I come from more the other side, which is more what the Americans are doing with uh, single malt whiskey, um, where they're actually coming at it from a beer perspective, putting a lot of emphasis on the barley and, and playing around with base malts and roasted malts. And yeah. more and more, there's distilleries in Australia popping up that are going the American style of, of, of single malt whiskey. And King Lake is, is a very good example. Um, they are experimenting with base and, and roasted and, and there's, there's other many other distilleries. So from your perspective, from where... Where it started with you and how you see the evolution of Australian whiskey. What's your take on what's going on in Australian whiskey in the last few years? Well, well, basically, I'm really excited the way Australia has the right or feels it has the right to be innovative. And I love that about Australia and what yeah. we're doing. Going back to when I started making whiskey back in the early 90s, I absolutely had no idea how to make whiskey. All I knew was I enjoyed drinking it. And back then, there was bugger all about making whiskey that unless you could, you know, some nice coffee table books written by Charles McLean or David Broom or something, there was always a couple of pages on how whiskey was made. And um, that was sort of the, the depth of my knowledge. And when I got my license in 1992, I'm sitting at home with Lynn going, What the bloody hell do we do now? We've got a license. How do we make whiskey? And Fair income, true story. Um, 
about two weeks after getting my license, 10 o'clock at night, the phone rang. I'm half asleep in front of the telly. And I pick up the phone and hello, Bill Lark here. And he goes, oh, day, it's John Green from Glen Farkless Distillery in Scotland. And I'm like, John, how can I help you? And he said, I know, Bill, he said, my distributor in Hobart tells me you've got a license to make whiskey. Would you let me help you make good whiskey? And I'm like, well, John, you've got no idea how pleased I am you found it. <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do. And I said, and to be honest with you, John, the last thing I wanted to do was make the, let the Scottish think, you know, you stupid colonials, what are you doing? We make yeah. whiskey, you make beer. I, I wanted to honour what they did in Scotland because I loved the Scottish malts. That's what got me into it. So yep. I sort of naturally fell into that traditional way. And, um, and I just started you know, progressing how we made it. And, and I soon discovered how important barrels were to making whiskey. Eventually, Christy, my daughter, got a scholarship to go over to Scotland and um, learn more about, you know, finessing the making of whiskey. And part of that was to, I went with her and um, we went to a conference in Edinburgh. And, and most of the conference was about um, yeast regimes and right. the importance of yeast regimes. So we came back with all of that knowledge and started playing around with yeast regimes and soon discovered like they were trying to tell us, and they're right, I believe, a combination of different yeast styles, say a, an M1 or a distiller's yeast combined with a, a good ale yeast. Um, yep. There's no science to prove it, but anecdotally, everybody seemed to agree that it created a whiskey that had a greater depth of character. So I guess Lynn and myself went down this path for a long time wanting to finesse that style. But um, as everybody knows, Lark's Distillery is not the distillery that Lynn and I created 30 years ago. It's now a much bigger uh, entity. And um, they've been quite innovative in ways that perhaps Lynn and I would never have done. And I've had some pretty um, solid discussions <laughs> with the board <laughs> of what they're doing and everything else. But I've had to sit back and go, well, you know what? Um, it's a different time and a different place. And uh, along with your idea of doing things the way you want to do it, Craig, you know, I've had to learn to accept and I'm happy to accept that, you know, we can do a lot of things here in Australia. We don't have to be tied to the Scotch Whiskey Act. Um, yeah. We need to, the most important thing I think is we all need to be helping each other to make good whiskey, just like John Grant said to me when he phoned me. So I think it's quite exciting the way we're heading. And I love the different styles of whiskey we're getting now around Australia. When I went to America with David Vitale back in, I think it was 2007, we went to a distillery in the Napa Valley, Charbays, and they oh. just distilled a whiskey from a brew, a beer they yep. bought from the local brewery at St. Helena. And um, yeah. Yeah. i got to tell you, it was, it was fantastic. And I brought it home and even the Gillies Club people thought it was bloody good. So instead of having that little peak finish, because it was made from a hopped beer, you had that really lovely floral note from the hops mm. on the finish, just like you would peak. And I thought that was sensational, you know. So, so there's room, Craig, and I'm glad there's people like yourself out there having a go. I think the, the use of hops in, in, in whiskey is, um, I think it's underutilised. People are worried that it's going to gum up your still or make it um, uh, be a bugger to clean or whatever. It's just going to be a lot of effort and work for not really much of a yield. But it does make a huge difference. Um mm. Yeah, I think and there was, there's such a variety of, of hops you can try as well. There was a bit of an argument brewing at the time, this is in 2007, even in America, that were they legitimately able to call it uh, a malt whiskey? 
because it had something other than malted barley yeast, that old, um, you know, uh, <laughs> argument. Um, yeah. I don't know where it ended up, but uh, I was pretty pleased. I got to uh, buy a bottle of it when I was there. And, yeah. um, you know, as I said, we're not yet bound in Australia by the same type rules as Scotland. I'd like to see us come up with some appellation for Australian single malt whiskey because I think I'd, I'm worried that one day there's going to be some some sharks come in from overseas and buy a neutral spirit and go to the homebrew shop and add an essence to it and call it Australian whiskey. I think, Craig, yeah. we need to somehow protect ourselves from that because we're all we're all putting a lot on the line, you know, the hard work and the money and the time it takes to create a good whiskey. We need yeah. to protect it, but let's not let's not um, restrict ourselves with hard rules and let's still be allowed to be a little bit innovative. It's one of our strengths. I, I agree. I think it's one of our strengths. You know, with, with Americans, they're, they're restricted. They need to go into new American oak, uh, mm -hmm. charred barrels. Um, Scotland, there's a lot of restrictions. I remember the story about Diageo wanted to use tequila barrels in, in Scotland because um, they had a good supply of tequila barrels. And under Scottish law, uh, restrictive Scottish law with Scotch, they couldn't do it because there was no historical precedent on, on tequila. Mm -hmm. which um, is fascinating because yeah, I remember talking to Australian distillers and they go, yeah, we'll give that a crack. <laughs> see see yeah. what we get. <laughs> we, know a, we know a good agave's, agave spirits distiller. Yeah, I heard we that know. one. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, last week we, we were chatting with uh, Westland Distillery. Yes. Yeah. And Westland for me was one of the most inspirational. It put me on my journey. And I remember one point that came up it was very, very strong in, 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 uh, in last week, was talking about the sense of place. And Westland, when they started, people were saying, so when are you going to make bourbon? And they go, well, why would we make bourbon? You know, we've got barley, but we've got some of the greatest barley in the world. It's on our doorstep. Why would we go and get corn when it's, <laughs> it's, it's in another part of the US? So they were very much about sense of place. Yeah. And I think... Particularly Tasmania is very sense of place, isn't it? Yeah, with with, uh, with barley and with water and, and everything else. Yeah, well, that's kind of the the um, the moment for me when I decided, or we decided, we were going to try and make whiskey was on that fishing trip with my father-in-law. And um, any excuse for Max to pull out a bottle of whiskey, we're sitting up uh, near Lake Sorrel, and um, we just started talking about those very things. Well, here in Tasmania, we know we've got pretty good barley because Bogues and Cascade were now selling all over the world. Um, our water, everybody believes, it, and, and it is, we've got some of the best, purest, cleanest water for the most part um, in yep. Tasmania, and I just figured the climate's got to be okay. We had those things, so it was sort of natural that we should jump on that and uh, see if we could make a single malt whiskey. Very cool. Very cool mm. indeed. So let's, let's come to where we are right now in, in Tasmania, and I'm commenting on it from the mainland, and I don't really know the ins and outs of it, but Carlington Mill, that must yes. be a seismic shift in what's going on in Tasmania, just the, Look, the sheer size of the operation and the approach. Com compared to most of the other craft distilleries around Australia, yeah, it is. It is a, yeah. a seismic shift. Um, but compared to Scotland, it's still a tiny wee little distillery. I think... Yes. Um, I think the pot still is 9,000 litres, but he'll never fill it more than 6,000 litres. So he'll do batches of 6,000, which sounds a lot to most of us. Um, it scares me. 
Um, <laughs> but I've tasted the spirit that's coming out of it already, and it's bloody beautiful spirit. And I've been through this over in Scotland, the, the thought that, you know, if you're going to grow, perhaps you should just build a whole lot more small stills because you yeah. might not get as good a spirit out of a bigger still. But I, I remember going to the Cotswolds distillery, Dan Saw's distillery, and I think he had a 6,000-litre wash still, and um, I was just blown away by the quality of his spirit. And I just thought, you know, I think it's all about the barley you use or the malt you use and the yeast regime and then how you run your still. I think that that's some of the most important things. So I've got to tell you, the spirit coming out of Callington Milk is exciting and fantastic. I can't wait for a, a few more years to be able to see how it matures up. Um, yeah. And for me, like Lynn and I started on our kitchen table with a 20-litre still. I mean, it's pretty scary to go into a distillery like that. But you know what? I'm excited. And I think when I look at it, and I get asked about this sort of thing all the time, my passion is with the craft distillery industry. Um, I'm a director of Old Kempton Distillery. We've made a board decision that we're not going to grow much beyond what we are today. Um, right. But I think there's room for these distilleries like Wellington uh, Mill, Hellyers Road. Um, Lark, of course, is growing all the time. And I think the benefit for people like you and I, Craig, and other craft distilleries around Australia is the world is loving what we're doing here in Australia and they yeah. want our whiskies. But there's very few of us at craft level that can export our whiskies in any reasonable numbers. And so whilst the world wants our whiskey and there's a demand for it, we can't show them how good our whiskey is in a way that I'd like us to. And I think that's where these big distilleries will come to play. They will have to export. They will have to go for that sort of market. And that will only enhance our reputation around the world, provided, and I think they are making good whiskey, provided the whiskey stays good. I think there's room for both the larger distillery and and the smaller craft distilleries. And we're all going to benefit from the work we do. And John Ibrahim, the owner of Callington Mills, a very good friend of mine, and I've got to tell you, he won't put anything in a bottle unless he's pretty damn happy with it, the way we are with our whiskies. And so um, I think the future looks pretty bright. Craft so hopefully we won't have a uh, Foster's equivalent of uh, of whiskey then as the, yep. uh, the international perspective of Australian whiskey. I'm pretty sure that won't happen, Luke. Not well, maybe in 20 or 50 years time. I don't know, but certainly not for at least that amount of time. I know even distilleries like Helios Road, um, the chairman of their board, um, which is made up of a, a group of old dairy farmers that got together and started uh, uh, Helios Road from Bittermilk. Um, Leslie, she lives down here in um, southern Tasmania. And I've got to tell you, they're just as dedicated to making sure they make a whiskey that stands up with the best craft whiskies in, in Australia. Mm. Um, and I know uh, Sullivan's Cove, Lark, um, certainly Callington Mill and Sheen have been doing that sort of, uh, that, that's been their philosophy. So, you know, as I said, by craft standards in Australia, Callington Mill with a 9,000 litre pot putting 6,000 litres of wash in, that's right at the small end of the Scottish industry. It's not by no means a big conglomerate type operation. And I'm pretty sure John doesn't want to grow beyond that. I think he wants to keep it at that sort of level. Uh, it's, a, it's an exciting time because just taking your point about the larger distilleries and, uh, you know, pushing into export and, and having supply lines that, you know, that they can back up. It is good for the smaller guys because yep. what, What's happening is 
people are getting exposed to um, you know, Australian whiskey. I mean, Starwood, case in point, you know, yeah. in America, what's happening in Starwood. And what's, what that leads to is, is it ignites people's curiosity. So they'll try like a Starwood or, or, or a, a lime burners or a lark or something which has been yeah. exported and go, that's really good. I really like that. What else is out there? And that, that was good for the little guys. They'll always come looking for those special little whiskies from the smaller guys. Don't you worry mm. about it. That's my, that's my feeling anyway, Craig. I'm, I'm pretty confident. And so if I was starting all over again, uh, I would start up a little craft distillery and I would make sure it never got much bigger than that. I would keep it at that level. And, um, <laughs> you know, because there's always going to be interest at that unique spec. Well, you know, when you travel and I travel, we, we go and look for those special little distilleries. Mm. Yeah. I, I, have a, I, have a, I have a saying, I, I think we take people to their happy place. Yeah. I, I think that's, sure. that's, that's a big thing with, with people. You know, when they taste your whiskies and they're, they're enjoying it and you see a big smile on their face, you're taking them to their happy place. And, and, and that's, the, thing, that's great. the thing with that, Craig, is the, the people that are consuming your whiskey, they want to talk to you. They want to talk to mm. the maker. Yeah. And... Um, and you're able to do that. You're on the spot, you know, and um, as a big distillery gets bigger, the people like John Ibrahim won't always be at the distillery. And um, But, you know, that's where it's a special moment for people to visit a craft distillery and meet the guy or the woman behind the brewing and distilling. Yeah. Todd's Absolutely. got a saying. Todd, Todd and Kathy and, and my wife got a saying for me, which is less, less – what is it? Too much. Yep, yep, not enough tap, tap. <laughs> too much yet yet not enough getting them to tap tap yeah but i think Todd, people really do love the yap yap oh they do they do <laughs> he's just lucky he's got a team around him that just keep doing the tap tap for him <laughs> he's very lucky very lucky indeed <laughs> so bill how much how much distilling are you doing these days are you have you got like your little your little uh, experimental still that you're working on, or are you in the the Lark Distillery working the uh, uh, the still there? Or how much are you doing these days? Look, really, I, I have to be honest and say very little. But the great position I'm in is that I can actually go out to the shed at Lark and play. I can mm. go to Old Kempton Distillery and play. I'm fairly heavily involved there. Um, you know, we've just built a new distillery there and sort of I've been involved in helping them set that up and playing with the, the stills. And my daughter, Christy, she's got a wonderful distillery at Kalara mm -hmm. and growing all the time. And my son, Jack, has set up a little distillery and running it for um, a hotel in Hobart at Battery Point. And mm -hmm. I get to play with, you know, I get asked to come and try their whiskey and to be there when they're distilling. And so, so I have the wonderful pleasure of not having to run a distillery but play in them. And it's great. I love and it. With, with all those different distilleries that have obviously been spawned from your uh, your legacy, really, are there differences between them in, in how they're in in their approach and their style and uh, why they've gone a different route? There's this kind of a common thread through Tasmanian whiskies. Yeah, but one of the things I never, ever do is try and um, lead somebody down a path that isn't their path. They have mm. to be able to stand up and tell their story. And if they, if it's their story that they've created, um, 
people will believe it. So I'm a I'm a great believer in like if Jack wants to make his whiskey his way, I let him. Um, I'm happy to go and taste his barrels when he asks me to and see what I think and make some comments. Um, it's a hard job. <laughs> and it's nice after 30 years to write your own business card, you know, brand ambassador or brand ambassador at large. <laughs> and I'd like to think I'm not just Lark's brand ambassador. I'd, I'm happy to be an ambassador for the whole industry. I just want to – I love the industry and I want to see it grow. Um, mm. But I love – I just love the differences coming out of distilleries across Australia. I really do. I really enjoy that. What do you What do you think is going to happen as? No, come back. Come back a step. So currently, there's over 400 distilleries in Australia. Yep. And in 2017, there was 1,000 distilleries in the US, and the population of the US back then, I can't remember. No. But as the ratio to population and, and distilleries, right now, you know, some people are saying, well, the market's completely saturated. There's no way there's room for any more distilleries. There's going to be consolidation, which inevitably, inevitably there will be consolidation. But some people have got real concerns about the, the industry and, and, and it's changing. Um, bigger money's coming in. Elbows are coming out. Um, and... I say to people, I believe I was one of the smell, the last smell of an oily rag distillery um, in the sense that I built my distillery out of secondhand pumps and, and yep. hoses that don't fit and all that. And I say to people look, if, who come to me and say, I'd like to have my own distillery. And I say, realistically, have you got a couple of million in your back pocket? Because to build a, a proper distillery with brew house and everything else, that's sort of what you're looking at now. So my question to you is, what do you see the landscape now and where do you see the landscape in, say, like five years? Yeah, um, I do I, don't, I do think about it. I don't worry about it. I think about it a lot and I get asked a lot, um, have we reached that saturation point? Is there too many distilleries now in Australia? And I, my take on it is um, in, if you looked at the volume 400 distilleries made in Australia, it's like a bee's leg of the international market. And yeah. um, the most important thing is we produce whiskies of high quality. And I, I, don't, I think we've got a long way to go before we need to worry about the volume of whiskey we're producing in Australia. But what does worry me a little bit is that we'll see a distillery on every street corner and instead of it being an exciting thing for people, it'll be ho-hum, another distillery. That kind of worries me a bit. But... Yeah. I don't know that we can do much about it. And I would never, I would hate to um, discourage somebody from starting a distillery if they want to do it, because I still think there's room, you know, provided you've got some capital behind you and provide you've got some passion and you've got some energy to get out there and take your whiskey to the market in your area, if that's what you choose, um, I think you can achieve um, your goal. Um, I do, like you said, I like to warn people um, that it's one thing to have a shed to put a still in and it's one thing to have the money to build a still and to get started. We all fall into that situation where we hit that financial brick wall where we yep. soon discover how much it takes to keep filling up barrel after barrel after barrel. And so you'll get through your first year's production and you'll start, you know, in five years' time or three years' time to start to sell it and think, wow, I've got money coming in. Then you'll realise... You need to put all that money back in because you didn't make enough and now you need to make more. And yep. it's going to be a long time before you actually 
are in a comfortable position where you can earn a nice living from it. Um, so there's those, there's a danger there that worries me a little bit. And there will be some consolidation because I know people are hitting that financial brick wall and going, what do I do? And yeah. some of them aren't all that small. They're quite reasonable sized distilleries and they've hit financial brick walls. And um, um, But would I like to stop anybody or discourage? No, I wouldn't. And I'm on the, um, the Australian Gin Awards panel and, you know, I look at the number of new gins popping up every day and I yes. think, how the hell can we sustain this? But you know what staggers me is when you talk to those people, they can nearly all find buyers for their gin. Mm. I, it staggers me. And so right at this point in time, whilst there appears to be a lot of distilleries and certainly a lot of gin labels around, there is still room for somebody to make a gin and go out and find a market for it. It's surprising, but it, it's well, true. Looking, looking at the... Um at the the brewing industry uh beer brewing here in in the uh inner west of of sydney uh certainly we've got uh over a dozen uh breweries and there are more opening up uh every few months it feels like yep. and they are constantly rammed yeah. So there's there's certainly a market, there's a demand, and and if the brewing the beer industry is anything to go by, uh, we sh we can have more distilleries uh, without much of an issue. Obviously, there's a price point difference. Yeah. <laughs> a yeah. beer is a little bit uh, a little bit more a little bit more affordable than a than a bottle of whiskey, um, but there's certainly the the market for it. Yeah, and and as long as our whiskeys other quality that we're making them i've never seen i mean there's always a, on some social media sites people that complain about the price but they're way in the minority you know and mm. i think most people are happy to pay a reasonable amount of money for a good whiskey absolutely um, still the case. again it's 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 the happy place yeah it is the happy place yeah it's, it's the happy place i i have um so, I sorry sorry have... somebody's just asked a question and it's a good question would i class myself or would you class yourself as a master distiller this is a question that pops up all over the place yeah and Bill, um would I, would never, I, 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 I would never call myself a master distiller i think some, that's something somebody has to bestow on you i know if you google the definition of master distiller it says it's about a distiller that's prepared to teach somebody how to distill well that's okay um but it seems to me some people go out and they make a still and they one run in, they call themselves the master distiller, where I think what they're meaning to say is they're the head distiller. But I don't get upset about it. But it is, it's an interesting question, and I know some people get quite concerned about this. But to be honest, I've never called myself a master distiller. Um, I'm just an old fart that's been around for nearly 30 years that had a go at trying to make whiskey. And, you know, <laughs> It's like a butcher. It's like a butcher. Just because you can go into a butcher and, and cut some meat, you're not a butcher. You're no. a person that can cut meat. Yeah. So, you're a butcher. Or you're a butcher. Yeah, you're a butcher. <laughs> Master butcher. Um, uh, just going back to the, the talking about uh, uh, you know pricing and, and that. I mean, the two biggest things you hear on on social media are you know Australian whiskies. Uh, they should be in 700 mil bottles or 750s. Why are they in 500s? Number one, and number yep. two, why, why is Australian whiskey so expensive? Um, and you hear those those arguments a bit on, on social media. So I, did, I actually did a post on social media a couple of weeks ago, and I said, putting those two things aside, 
what stops you from buying Australian single malt whiskey? And it was really good. It was like 120 comments that came through. And I think the, the overriding comment that came through was consistency. That, so just being able to have the same, order the same product and get it the same thing all the time. And that's really not what Australian whiskey is about, is it? Because we're, we're yeah. such a, we're, we're a young industry. I used to, in fact, on our first bottles of whiskey for a long time, I used to have on the back label that um, we're still learning. We're still experimenting with barrel types and yeast types and everything else. And so um, I'm telling people on the back of my label that every release is going to be different from the last one. And here's an yeah. opportunity for you as a consumer to come on the same exciting um, trip that we're on to discover mm. what makes Australian whiskey. And, um, you know, wouldn't it be boring if every time you bought a bottle of your favourite whiskey from Scotland that was exactly the same? I know some distilleries strive to do that, but I think we all look for, and we all remember the cracker single cast whiskey we got from La Chekels or from, you know, one of those places. And um, uh, so, yeah, I think we should celebrate the difference. I think what some people are saying is, though, that, um, and, and that, I thought, look, I'll be the first to put my hand up and say that when I released my first whiskies, I did so because I gave it to my friends and they were being polite and said, yeah, this is pretty good. And um, and I've looked back and tasted some of it, and it is good, but it, like hand on heart, it was still too young. Um, yep. And we've no doubt finessed, Lynn and I finessed the way we made whiskey over the years, and the whiskey did change. Um, and I think a lot of distilleries, when they start, sort of fall into that same trap that we needed cash flow, we needed, you know, people were buying it, so we thought that's got to be good. Um, but I get those comments from people that they go to their favourite distillery and they pay good money for a bottle. The next time they go, it's nothing like the one they bought. Um, I think perhaps we should be educating the consumer that this is actually quite exciting, that we can get those different whiskies from different distilleries. I, we probably wouldn't be here talking tonight if, all whiskey around the world was all the same all the time, would we? Mm. And it wouldn't be enjoyable at all. <laughs> yeah. And to, to go back, no, to go back to the five hundred mil thing, I mean, Lynn and I started out. We put our barrels, our whiskey in five hundred mil bottles because in our first year, our first release, we had something like a hundred and fifty five hundred mil bottles, the bottles, and that was all we had in the second year, and that was all we had in the third year, and so we put it in five hundred mil bottles so that we had more bottles to spread around to the consumer to get a reaction from people. Oh. If we put it in 700 mil bottles, there just simply would have been less of them. It wasn't it had nothing to do with price or anything else. It was we just needed to have enough bottles to try and satisfy the demand that, that happened. And we went through a period of um, 700 mil bottles at Lark, but um, there were times when we'd then have six months with nothing on the shelf, Lynn and myself. You know, people would come from all over Australia and go, crook at us. We didn't have any whiskey on the shelf. Um, so we've gone back to 500 mils. Uh, that might change into the future. Um, I don't know. Um, I know distilleries like Callington Mill, he will only sell in 700 mils. Yeah. He'll, he, he, but he'll be big enough to be able to do that. Yeah, he um, can back. You go to places like Edradow. They sell in 500 mil bottles over at the cellar door. Yep. Mm. That's cool. So when when the borders open properly and you can go overseas and it's whiskey related and it's fully tax deductible, where, where do you want to go, Bill? <laughs> I'm, I'm desperate. If, 
because we might only be allowed to travel one more time. And so I, I would go straight to Isla. I've got a lot of great friends there. It's a great, it's the mecca for whiskey, I think. Um, Where was that? Sorry, you cut Isla. out for I, oh, Isla. Isla. Oh, yeah. I'd go, yeah. I'd go to Isla. I, yeah. I, I definitely would. Um, but of course, while I'm over that way, I'd, you know, I'd, there's a few other little friends I've got around the place that I'd love to visit and keep an eye on. So now I desperately want to get back to Isla. In fact, I'm working on a bit of a, a way, a means of getting there in June next year. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. So I've got my fingers crossed. Will you catch up with Jim McEwen? Uh, I didn't last time I was there, but I have caught up with Jim a few times and uh, hell of yeah. a nice bloke and his wife, Barbara, daughter, Lynn, mm -hmm. lovely family, good people. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've got a... Absolutely, I got a connection to um, to Brook Laddie. Brook Laddie, yep. uh, early two thousand. That's when I started drinking whiskey, and uh, through circumstances, um, I managed to secure a Brook Laddie uh, cask that was maturing, and it was a Port Charlotte cask, oh, and yeah. it's now uh, eighteen years old. Wow, I got a twenty percent stake in it, and so we've been we've in the process of trying to bottle it remotely right now. So, and I've got a, I've got a good friend, Rachel McNeil on Isla. Um, and she runs the Isla Whiskey Academy over there. And she's uh, tasted it and working with individuals there. And uh, what I'm trying to do, so before Brook Laddie was acquired by Remy Martin, I had an agreement with the old Brook Laddie that I could actually get the barrel once it was decanted, oh, bring it okay. to Australia. And continue the journey with the Brook Laddie cask. Yeah, and well, I, I'd, I'd still love to do it. it. It doesn't quite fit in with the corporate position of Remy, but uh, there's wheels and motions, and we'll see. We may get lucky and get that cask, which would be would be incredible. Youngie staying Gadados, sorry. Yeah, you go. Youngie staying Gadados. Yeah, Youngie, how are you, mate? From the Cooperage, he's a busy man right now. <laughs> so, um. Bruick Lad is an interesting story because, as you know, you said uh, in your right, Remy Quantro now own it. And um, oh, the first time I went to Bruick Laddie was in 2005. And um, Barbara, uh, Jim's wife, took us around to show us the distillery. And their distiller was a young bloke by the name of Alan Logan, who is now the head of production. Yeah, at yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I said to Alan, So, mate, you've been here a long time. How do you find it now as the production manager of, of Bruick Laddie? Um, yeah. with a company like Remy Quantra, and he said, Bill, it's fantastic. He said, all they've done is bring a heap of money to the distillery and they don't interfere with us one little bit. We make Bruick Laddie the way we've always made it. We operate it the way we've always... We've just got greater resources to do it. He said, it's wonderful. So that mm. was encouraging and that was a, a terrific thing. Mm. It was fantastic to see that because, yeah, yeah. when Remy, Remy took over, now, Brook Laddie was... Uh, fiercely independent and when they took over a lot of people thought well that's the end of you know Brook Laddie yeah. you know, they're, they're fiercely independent distillery but yeah my god they've, they've, they've held on to it and just gone from strength to strength and it's 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 yeah. so good to see it really is well, let me know when you've got your bottles from Port Charlotte Barrel yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I was over there last time Martine Nui who lives nearby she had a barrel she bought it or was given to her and she bottled it and um, she uh, kindly gave me one to bring home. I've got to tell you, it was a stunning whiskey. It was mm. a beautiful you well, must have some. You must have some special little bottles there 
in your collection of, yeah, of wonderful things that have been given to you over the years. What's what sort of what's on your shelf there that you look at and go, how the hell did I get that? Well, if you look above my head on my shelf, the top shelf, you might notice an old um, flagon of Cariah. <laughs> I've actually got four bottles of Cariah, and I'll never open them. Um, right. Yeah. My wife, Lynn's goes crook all the time. Every time she opens a cupboard, bottles of whiskey fall out. <laughs> <laughs> what a problem. Yeah, no, look, it, it is a nice place to be where, you know, I've been around long enough now and made a, a lot of good friends around the the world in whiskey and it's um and it's nice when they send things over but every you know i don't know where to put it anymore <laughs> oh you just have to drink it well i do <laughs> <that's right. laughs> i've only got one liver <laughs> I, went, I went to jim, jim murray's office once in england and yeah. um, went to visit him and I, I opened the door of his office and i reckon i must have knocked over 20 bottles trying to get to his desk the floor <laughs> and i'm looking around going Jeez, there's some pretty valuable bloody whiskey here too. And he said, oh, you think that's impressive? Come down to my garage. <laughs> he took me down to the garage. He had two-car garage, chock, a block with stuff that people have been sending him. And I, some of it, oh, geez, I'd love to get my hands on. <laughs> anyway, that's a, I, I thought if I come back in life again, it'll be as a whiskey journalist. <laughs> oh, yeah, hard job. <laughs> We've got, got a questionable <laughs> statement from Robbie. From, uh, I think it was more a statement. <laughs> one of my one of my lucky purchases was I was at um, uh, Bruick Laddie uh, with Alan Logan, um, and I think Jim McKeown was there too. And they, they had three bottles left of their Yellow Submarine release, and I managed to get one to bring home. I wished I'd got the three of them. That's and, the original. Uh, yeah. up at Old Kempton Distillery. Wow. Fascinating story. The the Yellow Submarine. There's a famous. Uh, scallop fisherman on Isla. He, he's actually, he's my brother's wife's brother's wife's cousin's cousin. So we've kind of got a connection. <laughs> anyway, Harold was mm -hmm. a famous scallop fisherman one day out fishing in the uh, Isla Sound. And he came across um, a United Kingdom Ministry of Defence unmanned yellow submarine, a spy submarine. And it, and it was just adrift. And so he tied a rope to it and dragged it back into Port Ellen. Phoned up the Ministry of Defence and said, oh, listen, fellas, I found your submarine. And they said, oh, it's not ours. And he said, well, that's a bit funny because it's got your name tattooed on the side. You know, <laughs> he, he Googled and found that they'd actually lost another one a few months before and they're quite valuable and they were a bit embarrassed about that. So he thought, right, stuff you. He took it home and put it in his front yard just in, in the township of Port Ellen and it became a bit of a tourist attraction. And after about six weeks, they phoned him and they said, look, it's not ours, but don't tell anyone you found it. You know, so he got straight on the internet and it was all over the world. And then six weeks later, they phoned him up and said, oh, look, um, Harold, it is actually ours and we're coming to pick it up tomorrow, but please don't tell anyone. And he thought, buddy, yeah, he got straight on the internet and he had the BBC <laughs> and everybody in Port Ellen to see them come and pick up their valuable stuff. <laughs> so that was the... Brewery glad he took that uh, opportunity to release a whiskey called the Yellow Submarine. Anyway, you, sorry. Do you know the sequel story to that? What happened with the Yellow Submarine? They took it away and yep. he thought, stuffed them all, and they never even said thank you. And all he ever wanted was a thank you from them. So he thought, I'm going to go salvage rights. And he had a go at salvage rights, but discovered 
He would have if it hadn't been owned by the government. But because it was owned by the government, you can't claim salvage rights on it. But if you Google it, it's a great story. <laughs> well, there's, there's another part to that story. So this, I think this is about five years ago now. Uh, it was one of, I always pronounce this wrong, the Whiskey Festival on Isla. How do you pronounce it, Bill? Is it the Fashar? Fisal. So it was a Fisal, and um, they, they had, uh, I can't remember if Jim McEwen was there at the time. Yeah, he was. And they had, they had a, a banner. Sorry, that, that, yeah, they, they had a covering, and something was hanging, and they dropped it. And it was the yellow submarine. Oh, <laughs> that Brooke Laddie actually bought. This is what I believe. They actually bought the yellow submarine because it was sold off many, many years ago. And oh, so okay. they did. They did a second release yellow submarine. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, which is highly collectible, like the first one. <laughs> oh, I wished I'd known about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. All right, now let's talk about. Uh, fuck ups in the distilleries. You're gonna have your show and tell things that go wrong. Yeah, you know, let's give people the real oil. Some of the <laughs> things that go wrong in the distillery. So, give me your top three fuck ups in your in your shed, Bill. Over well, the years. I think the first one is um, down to myself. Um, it was at a time when we were still operating out of our 500 litre still that used to be outside Christie's bedroom but it was now in at the cellar door site in Hobart where our cellar door is. And um, I used to come in at what, five o'clock and I'd pick up 1,200 litres of wash from the St Ives Brewery just down the road and I'd bring it in and I'd fill up the still and then I'd pump the rest into some vats. to just, So I did three wash runs every day for three days and then a spirit run. And I'd been doing quite a bit of it for a while and I was just getting really tired. I was filling up the still one day and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, now, that's a funny noise. I've not heard that noise before. What's that noise? And I'm looking around. I'm thinking, no, I don't. Un and I looked down just as I'd about run out of wash to pump in the still. I'd left the drain open on the bottom of the still. As fast <laughs> as I was pumping it in the still, it was going down the bloody drain. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> We're so annoyed about that. We triple check everything here. <laughs> no, well, look, there was a time when Chris Thompson um, had just being given the opportunity to be distill on his own, to brew and distill on his own right, on his own, out at the shed. Right. He was out there early one morning and he wanted to fill the wash still up. Uh, sorry, he no, brewed all day. It was at the end of the day and he brewed all day and he filled up the wash back. And he was about to clean up and he noticed there was a bit of a leak on the door of the wash back. So he thought stupidly he should undo the screw thing and loosen the door and then reseal it but he didn't have <laughs> a weight of 1200 litres of wash <laughs> and oh. the whole 1200 litres came out knocked him on the floor so he's covered in sticky bloody wash <laughs> lost a lot and he's he's pooping himself he's he was too scared to phone me up and he finally worked he cleaned up he finally worked up the courage to phone me and he, he told me what happened. He was really worried what I was going to say. And he got really pissed off because all I could do was laugh. I could just be <laughs> Chris on the floor. With all... I said, don't worry, Chris. I've chucked it down the drain when I'm half asleep. I said, at least I didn't chuck it all over myself. <laughs> so things do go wrong, as you know, I'm sure. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Show and tell. What do you got? What do you got? So, so I was going to show you a specific apparatus, but like on the day that this particular thing happens, I can't find it. What is so, it? We're show? Well, show you something else. So we're, we're going to go for a little walk. Oh, are we? Yeah, we are. well, you're not. You oh, this is stay, unrehearsed. Stay, this is very unrehearsed. <laughs> so we're walking through the shed here. I'll just show you our mash tun. Oh, now they're going to drop out, aren't they? So this is... Uh, All right. Once you're there, stay still. Yeah. <laughs> These are the things that go wrong at distilleries, Todd. Uh, Luke. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. There's something yep. missing at the bottom of it. Very much like the day that... Um... <laughs> You're allowed to scream. His last wash. <laughs> no screen. Without a mesh screen. Doesn't, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bill picked it up. <laughs> I've never done that, Todd. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You've done something that Bill hasn't done. Oh, no. uh, that, 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 was, that was rookie mistake number one, and that was purely a case of I, I, was, I was on the phone. The phone was ringing all the time, and I had to make calls, so I put a headset on. I thought, bugger, I'll be clever. So I was milling, brewing, and distilling all at the same time with my headphones on. And then I was trying to lauter back over in, into the tun, and the pump just went there. And I couldn't work out why. And I opened it up, and it's just full of grain. Yep. And I go, why is it full of grain? And then you, you start thinking it through, and you go, oh, shit. Oh, no, not possible. Not possible. Yeah, it was possible. It was a 4.30 in the morning I got to bed. That was a that shock. Yeah. Was that the first the day? Point, that was the first was. time I came to the shed, wasn't it? You were. Was that oh, that, that was, day? Oh, that was. We had to get the uh, yeah the plastic spoon pushing up the stout because uh, the spout because we had a blockage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the things you do. I, I put it. I put everything on social media. I mean, our brand is humanizing the art of whiskey: the good, the bad, the ugly. Sure. And I get yeah. the stiller mates bring me up and go. Why do you tell people shit like that? <laughs> well, as you say, we all make mistakes. Telling people about this is because it's showing a big step change from when I first joined the shed. Ah. So if this happened on day one, Crafty would have been sitting in the corner sucking his thumb, rocking backwards and forth, <laughs> going, I don't, what, I don't know what to do. But he was able to pretty much by himself, oh, was able almost. to work out how to get it out and, and save the save the wash. So, well, there you go. Very good. I actually pulled out 50 lows too, so I was quite impressed. Yeah. <laughs> and surprisingly, oh, so you did a good wash. You <laughs> didn't totally waste it. That was good. Yeah. No, no, God, no. There's no waste here. <laughs> the wonders will never cease. I've got another question. We're, we're out at um, Mudgy Markets. What, two weeks ago now? Two weeks ago, yeah. And this young guy, what, mid-20s turned up? Mid-20s, yep. Absolutely full of life, bouncing around, basically stopped the market as, as he came up to our stand. There's a guy called Jesse. And Jesse's probably watching tonight, and if he's not watching tonight... He should be, be. He should be. <laughs> he'll be. He'll be listening to this podcast later in his shed. This guy is really passionate in the art of distilling and okay. um, wanted to ask you a question on his behalf. If yes. you're a young guy wanting to start off, how would you how would you go about trying to get into the distance? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I get asked that a lot. Um, and and if I was a bit younger, I'd 
wouldn't mind having another go myself, but I would I would decide to stay at a small craft level servicing a local community. And so I would hopefully be in a place where I had a good uh, opportunity for visitors to come to my distillery. And I would keep it at a certain level where I could sell everything I make at full retail margin, um, but allow myself the luxury to be able to wholesale a little bit to places, uh, commercial places in my vicinity. And I wouldn't get any bigger than that. I would just stay that size and um, and really enjoy uh, the craft of making distillery this, uh, whiskey and interacting with the people. It's one of the things I love most about our industry. When you take your whiskey to, a, say, a craft show or a trade show or a, a rural show, to sit behind a table and just talk about your whiskey and, and see the look on people's faces. I love that side of it. So um, I, I'm glad there's, as I said before, I'm glad there's distilleries that want to go bigger, but I would love to be just a very small crafter. And I think you could probably make a very nice living doing that. And I've often thought about it. But, you know, we've done taken our whiskey to a craft show, a craft show over four days, and we've taken nearly $50,000 in sales at a craft show. And I'm thinking you could nearly make a living just simply going around from rural show to rural show, keeping yeah. your overheads low, um, having the great delight of, of dealing with the customers you're selling your whiskey to. And, um, and if you can, that would be how I would do it if I was doing it again. That's, that's fascinating because we're, we're sort of at the stage now where we're starting to chain markets together. Um, yep. And the markets are very much Todd, me, and, and Luke did one uh, just recently. Yep. Um, he's, he's, he's no longer a virgin market. Yeah, yeah, he's no longer a virgin. You're no longer <laughs> a virgin market, Luke. So, um, but we're getting to the point where I'm actually starting now to pull together a bit of a team to do markets because you chain yep. enough markets together. They're great. That, I reckon you're right. unpaid. <clears throat> unpaid. Unpaid, unpaid, yeah, yeah, unpaid. This man's unpaid. He's That's unpaid. Like Todd. <laughs> I heard Todd going crook on one of your oh, hang, on, hang on, hang on. Do I get paid? No, I don't get paid either. So, <laughs> so, so hang on, who, who makes money in this thing? <laughs> As you said, Bill, everything goes back into barrels and raw materials. It, it's, yep. it's, yeah, my accountant says, oh, you've turned a profit last year. And I go, really? Where is it? Show where me. Where is it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's in your bond store. That's where it is. Exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. Yeah. 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 No, that's cool. Um, just on um, people in the industry, you know, there's some really interesting characters in the industry like Peter Bignall uh, and, and what Pete, Pete, Peter's doing and that. And... and Tim Duckett. I mean, <laughs> has Tim got any Carlington Mill you make? Is that is that part of his his master plan to get some of that as well? I wonder. It's, I don't um, think he's had the opportunity to buy any yet. No. Yeah. So, um, how important do you think it is in the craft space to have these identities, these these personalities? Do you see that as a big part of of the craft story? Yeah, I do. I think it's huge, Craig, and. Um, Peter Bignall's a good example. We call him um, affectionately Gyro Gilus or Mr. Gadget. Uh, <laughs> you know, go, go, gadget man. Because he, he, like, Peter will turn an old, broken down, bloody 
tumble dryer into a peat smoker, you know. Yeah. Um, his, his distillery looks like Stepdo and Sons bloody junkyard. And <laughs> you take people there and their eyes are rolling around in their head and you're thinking, I wonder what the hell they're thinking about Peter and this and the stories he tells. And and I go, well, come on, it's time to go. And everybody goes, well, hang on a minute, Peter, can we buy some whiskey? And they fill their arms up with his whiskey and they come outside and they go, wow, wasn't that fascinating? Isn't he a character? They mm. love it. They really mm. do love that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, people like like Peter Bignall are really important to our industry. He humanises it. You talked about that yourself earlier, the, the yeah. humanising aspect of it. And Peter's one of those sort of – Tim Duckett's a huge character, you know, he, he likes to be yeah. controversial, and um, but it, Tim enjoys people taking the piss out of him. He's happy about that, and uh, um, he's a he's a great character. He's been wonderful for our industry, and um, you know it's great to see independent bottlers uh, um, showing faith in the distilleries. And um, uh, you know, I always tell people if Tim asks you to go down to his bond store, be very very careful. Don't drive down. Get an Uber because you'll never get out. You won't. You certainly won't be driving home. Huh? Um, you know. <laughs> okay, question about the evolution of Australian whisky. Um, and I remember talking to uh, Darweed from Ostra uh, Distillery years ago um, about the concept of there will a day there, a day will come in Australia where Australia will, will make blended whisky. It will be it will be grain and it'll it'll be malted malted whisky coming from different distilleries around Australia. That's a very real proposition, isn't it? Yeah, it That's is. Australian yeah. blended whiskey. Look, it is. When when I started, I I looked at those things. I mean, I I, I used to enjoy famous grouse and bells and you know all those whiskies in my younger days too. And but I when I thought I'm going to have a go and and see if we can make this work, I quickly realised there was no way in the world I'd be able to produce a blended whiskey. And be able to sell it to be afford to afford to be able to sell it at the price you could buy a good blended whiskey for. I mean, yeah. blended whiskies, um, you know, come on the market at a pretty reasonable price because they just simply make truckloads of it in huge continuous stills to make their grain spirit, and they can afford to put it out. At, and so I thought I could never compete against them. But so I started looking at single malt whiskies from Scotland, and in particular single cask, because for a long time we only ever released our whiskey as single casks. And right. I looked at the price of a single cask, single malt whiskey from Scotland, and I thought, I did my sums, and I thought, well, you know what? I can come onto the market at about the same price and make a reasonable, you know, uh, profit to keep going. So um, for us, it was a matter of, uh, for a start, I really, by that stage, loved my single malt whiskies, and it just made sense to go down that path. But, um, yeah, I think you're right, Craig. I, I see in the next 10 years there'll be uh, somebody making blended whiskies, making their own grain spirit and then buying up malt whiskies from some of the other bigger distilleries around to produce a good blended whiskey. Mm -hmm. That'll happen. It will happen. I mean, you're starting to see, um, well, Starwood have done um, twofold, which is simply twofold, a grain yeah. spirit with their mm. malt. Yeah. Um, you're starting to see Lark Distillery, when it had barrels from three different distilleries, produce um, a blended whiskey uh, uh, from three Tasmanian different distilleries. Yeah. So um, the uh, the Symphony Number no. One, Symphony Number no. One, a blend of Tasmanian single malt whiskeys. Mm. So that's which not a, a which is a I lovely really drop. I, I think it's a great drop, and uh, yeah. I take my hat off 
to there's a lot of things you know I've, I've sort of had to struggle with because it's not the way Lynn and I did it but I keep telling Chris Thompson and, and the, the, the company that hand on heart I've never had a whiskey coming out of luck that I, I thought was um, not right I think they're producing wonderful whiskies um, and so look um, yeah I can see a day when it will happen and I mean, I was given a bottle of um, Royal Salute by uh, a pretty special guy from Victoria that uh, he, luck, I think Royal Salute had only ever, uh, Shivers Regal had only ever given away two private barrels, one to Prince Charles and one to this other well-known Victorian chap. And uh, we kind of connected nicely a few months back and he gave me a bottle of this 21-year-old Royal Salute and it's a bloody nice whiskey, a really nice whiskey. So I think one day we'll see that and not far away. Uh, yeah. There's there's definitely an art to the blend. Oh, good. Yeah, when, you're, when, you're, when you're taking um, all these other fantastic whiskies and trying to create something that is then better than the sum of, their, sum of its parts, uh, I think there's a real skill to that. Yeah. And the Japanese have shown that uh, really yeah. well and that uh, obviously a lot of their whiskies are... Uh, are blends and they're some of the best whiskies I've had. Sure. And I don't think, you know, as that market grows in Australia, as that product grows, I don't think it'll take away from single malt whiskies one little bit. Mm. I don't think we need to worry or fear that that's going to change the landscape in that respect. Um, no, it's a, different, mm. it's a different category. And you touched on it, Luke. Um, you know, to, to be a distiller is one thing. To be a blender... That's another ball game altogether. Just because you're a good mm. distiller doesn't necessarily mean you're a good blender. It, it's no. it's a whole different school set, skill set, skill set, skill set, skill set. Oh yeah. And, and Craig, you're right because as you get bigger, even in your distillery, you'll probably have releases where you'll want to blend a number of barrels together. Started and just to doing that, that just to. doing that, you know, Started there's out. a real art in that. Some work oh. and some don't. You know. What one of the biggest learnings that I've had actually. And no one really taught me this is when you taste something in a barrel, it tastes a certain way, right? And you go, okay, this is how it tastes. So based on how it tastes, I will pull it out of the barrel. When you put it into a container or a receiver, it changes, it, right? And as you would know, Bill, it changes. And it's, it, it bears resemblance to what was in the cask, but, it, but it's changed. Then when you... You start to break it down. If you break it down with water, it changes again. Then when you put it in a bottle, you let it sit for a couple of weeks, it changes again. So you go, you look at what's in the cask, you make a decision on what's in the cask, and then what's ultimately in the bottle. There's there's a lot of unknowns in that, isn't there? It's you you there's no there's no hard and fast ways. You you've really got to feel your way through it all, don't you? And I think that just comes from experience, Craig. You've just yep. got to get that understanding of how it does change. It definitely yep. does. People used to say whiskey doesn't change once you put it in a bottle. But there isn't a distiller in the world that I've spoken to that um, agrees with that. And they all say it, it might not change character, but it certainly softens in texture or something. It does change. It there softens. Isn't... The mouthfeel changes as well, I think. I'm a yeah. real believer in that. But also, you know, people say, you know, when you open a bottle of whiskey, does it change? I reckon you pop the top and you take that first part off, that's when you taste your whiskey and you get a real good representation of what the whiskey's like. It, they need oxygen just to blow it off 
once you pop the cork, don't they? Yep, sure. Yep, yeah, like a good one. So is, is that an argument for a smaller bottle? <laughs> Come on, Luke, is it? <laughs> I don't Them know. Five words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can speak well with your, your artificial fish tank. Back yeah, there. yeah, your artificial your TV that <laughs> looks like a fish tank. Um, no, they're real. They are real. They're real. Yeah, fish. Sure, sure. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Next, we're telling us there's no such thing as drop bears. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we we have, we have a segment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we have done my segment. No, you got another segment. We we, we have another segment. <laughs> dropping me under a bus. It's, it's called Todd's Todd's Ten Seconds of Fame, yeah. and so he likes to ask questions. So I I was the apprentice for three years. And he was the apprentice apprentice. After three years, I said, okay, I'm no longer an apprentice on the distiller, but he's still the apprentice. So he's so, got, so I got a promotion to apprentice on the same money. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Sorry about the money. <laughs> so what questions you got for Phil about stuff relating to distilling? About stuff relating. Okay. I told you you're on the spot. I know he's going to bugger off. Seriously, this is what he does all the time when I'm working in the shed, by the way. Before you drink, please. Okay. Todd's thrown under the bus segment. Very good. Let's call the segment. Let's throw Todd under the bus. I keep having these fantastic. I had some really good questions to ask you just then, but he's ruined it again. He does that. He does say. No, no, no. It was, it's, it's, well, uh, while you're thinking, while you're thinking, I've got one. Okay, so here's one. All right, go for it. What do you? What was your biggest learning when you first started that you feel that would be helpful for others? Uh, the first important thing. Um, uh, look, it really was certainly don't underestimate the importance of a good barrel. That, that that was the first thing I learned and spent a lot of time playing with, just how important a barrel was to making whiskey yet. And and don't get tired when you're filling up your still. Don't fill up your still. <laughs> True. Another good one. Um, yeah, I think, and the other lesson that really is important one for somebody starting out is, you know, you've really got to be true to your passion to want to make good whiskey and um, don't be afraid to say this isn't right and I'm not going to Lynn and I made a promise to each other when we started we would never ever put anything in a bottle unless we were 100% happy that we'd love to share it with our best friend that was mm. sort of our criteria but so um, you know and I think that's an important message for Australian distillers so that if we can sort of um, follow that creed uh, we're all going to help each other and we're all going to grow together really nicely and grow the industry. Uh, also, what uh, I think an observation of, of our conversation is you, all the way through, you've never said I. You've said Lynn and I. Yeah. All Very the way important. through. So it's been a real partnership between you. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, look, it has. Um, Lynn... I get into trouble from a mother-in-law. She's always saying, why isn't Lynn in the paper or why isn't Lynn being interviewed? And the reality is um, Lynn's is just, she hates, she shies away, she doesn't hate media, she hates being in front of media. So she'll shy away. If she sees a camera, she shies away from it. And so 
um, unfortunately for her, I get pushed to the front and it's all about Bill Larkin, the Godfather. And I, uh, I purposefully mentioned Lynn because without Lynn, Lark Distillery wouldn't be what it is today. Lynn, I, I used to like fluffing around with the whiskey, but we had for a long time a fantastic gin and the bush liqueur and apple schnapps. Lynn has developed all of those products and been instrumental in, um, in distilling uh, in her own way and her own like she's a she is a I would say Lynn is a master distiller and mm. uh, uh, she's very clever at what she does and making products the other great thing about uh, what Lynn did for I I used to love just fluffing about and um, Lynn was in the office always keeping an eye on how much money I was spending um, <laughs> and making sure we didn't go broke <laughs> and Lynn was very good in you know in, in many many ways in helping keep the business together. So yeah, look, it has been an absolute partnership from day one. Um, the thing I have to say though is when Lynn came up to the lakes that day that I was drinking whiskey with Max and we said, you know, why isn't somebody making whiskey in Tasmania? Lynn turned up right at that moment and she said, I don't know, but why don't you give it a go? Let's give it a go. So. Lynn has been supportive from the very... The one thing she said to me was, though, because Lynn and I were involved in a ski field pub up at Ben Lomen. We had um, shares in a small farm down at Mountain River. I was running a survey practice, and Lynn said, let's see if we can make whiskey, but promise me, promise me we won't start another business. (laughs) (laughs) Nine years later, I sold a survey practice. A few years later, we sold the pub. We sold the farm. (laughs) And people say to me, look how successful you've been, Bill. And I go, no, 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 we're actually failed business people because Lynn and I had a business plan. And the first item on our business plan was not to start a business. <laughs> <laughs> so be, just be careful. Be careful <laughs> yeah, look, what you wish for. I, yeah. I, I, I do like to honour Lynn and what she's done. And I also like to respect and honour um, the help that we've had from the Scottish industry, because I can tell you, we wouldn't be here today without the help we had from people like John Grant from Glen Farkless, Dennis Nickel, and um, you know the boys at Brewer Gladdy and um, um, Edward Dower, and and so many distilleries that have helped and encouraged us. Um, oh, that's- so I want to acknowledge them and um, respect them, and I never ever, if I, I hate hearing people saying we're making whiskey better than Scotland. No, we're not. We're no. making good Australian whiskey. And Scotland yep. makes great Scottish whiskey, and I yep. love it. The bits. Um, yep. Sorry. There's a place for all whiskey. That's there that's is. The, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's absolutely. not a case that we're making better. It's a case of we're making Australian whiskeys. Um, yep. And I, I did it tonight. You know, uh, someone at the pub goes, "I must get a bottle of your Scotch to send it to my my brother in in, in Scotland," and I went. You want to send a bottle of Australian whiskey to your brother in Scotland? And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah you're right." And I go, "You're right." No, <laughs> we hear less and less of that now, fortunately, but it still pops up from time to time. Oh, yeah. you, you can't blame people that you know. Start. I started off drinking Scotch, you know. So, no, no, I, I'm so huge, so huge so fan of Scotch. All. Yeah, and we, we drink Scotch all still the time. Um, <laughs> one of one of the things that I, that amuses me. Uh, with my cellar door is occasionally you'll get a Scotsman come in and, and they, they all do the same thing. They come into the shed and they, they look around and they go, ah, so you're trying to make whiskey, are you? You're trying, you're trying to make whiskey? And then the second thing they always say is, so how old is it? And you go, oh, here we go, right? So, so you explain the whole story and that. And there was one time 
I brought a Scotsman to tears. Uh, yes, it had a few, but he tasted the whiskey and he said to me, I came in here, I thought it was going to be crap. I had no intention of buying anything. And here I am parting. It was actually my I am, which was the, the, the first release, which was yep. $220 a bottle. He goes, yep. I'm parting $220. And he was a Scotsman. And he said, I'm taking it back home and putting it on the table with my Scots mates and we'll drink this. And I thought, <laughs> that's good. That's a great moment. And I had one almost the same as that when we had our first release in 1998. We had a cellar door at Richmond and um, we only had a small amount left. And this Scottish bloke came in one day and he, I was behind the counter and he said, so what is it you're doing here? You're not be making whiskey, would you? And I said, oh, well, as a matter of fact, so we are. And he said, well, you better give me a taste. And I said, look, I'm so sorry. I can't give you a taste because I've only got not a lot left. I can sell you a taste for three dollars. Well, he went crook. Three dollars. He didn't want to pay three dollars for a taste. Anyway, he got his three dollars out and he said, "You better give me the taste." And I gave him the glass, and he took a sip and went straight to the back door. And I thought, "Oh God, he doesn't like it. He's going to spit it out." He opens the back door out into the courtyard, and he sings yeah. out, "Hey Mary, guess what? They do make whiskey in here, and it's not bad." And he came in and he bought three bottles. <laughs> And that was, I had that same moment. Beauty. Awesome. <laughs> winner. I've arrived. I've arrived, yeah. Well, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right, well, we're at a minute 15, so we normally try a and minute, wrap it up. An hour. Uh, again? An hour. An hour. Did I say a minute? Sorry. A minute. Sorry. It's yeah. a very quick minute. It's a very quick minute, yeah, exactly. An hour, an hour 15. We normally try and wrap it up uh, around this time, Bill. Um, is there any last comments you'd like to make? I mean, thank you. It's been an honour and an absolute laugh to have you on and hear your stories and, and, and some of the history. I mean, you are a living history of Australian whisky. So what would you like to, to sum up? What would you like to say? Um, I'd just like to say how proud I am of... Look, we get a lot of recognition for being the grandfather or the old fart. And it's only when you've been around as long as I have, people start giving you those sort of names. But I can honestly say to you too, Craig, that um, the Australian whiskey industry wouldn't be where it is today, not not without me, but without all of the wonderful people like yourself and all the other great craft distillers I know that have shared in that passion and wanting to produce a bloody good whiskey. And so, and I'm um, extremely proud of that fact. So if we've done one thing, it's been, that we were lucky to be there at the beginning, but we've also been lucky to see this industry grow with really great people. So I'd just like to say, please, everybody, keep up the good work. And um, and I really hope we can get over all this COVID nonsense because Mark Nicholson and myself are desperate to get on our motorbikes and come and visit you all. Oh, that's, yeah. our, that's our dream. Yeah. We're looking forward to having a dram with you too. Yeah, we've got some good riding country out here. Yeah. <laughs> I believe so, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks well, again, Bill. No, pleasure, and it's been fun. I've really enjoyed chatting. It's one of the things I really like about this industry now, Craig. Uh, actually, just to, just on that note, when we finished up with uh, with Westland uh, last week and, and we were chatting you know, afterwards, uh, Chris goes, that was so much fun. He goes, you know, sometimes these are all a bit, you know, Bit formal, bit, bit bit stale. He goes, but that was fun. And we were talking as, about, as you can see, no formality here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this, is this is shooting the shit, and and this is what we do. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, we're growing the platform. Uh, and and I say to Australian distillers, you know, established ones and and ones just starting up, you know, this is your platform as well. 
So, you know, if you want to get on and, and tell your story, let us know uh, and, and we'll put it in. Uh, we've, we've got quite a few distilleries lined up and it's uh, every story is different and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. We love it. Well, good on you. Good for doing it and taking the initiative. Fantastic. Cool. Thanks, right. Bill. I'll finish the whiskey, but cheers. <laughs> Thank Bill, you all man. for watching. Thank you, Bill. It's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, just remind everyone to please like and subscribe on Facebook and uh, YouTube. It really, really helps us out and obviously spreads the word. We're here to promote Australian whiskey. So please help us help the industry. Uh, the Australian Whiskey Awards are also on. So if you haven't already, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find the link. Here it is. I've, I've found the link. Uh, please put in your nominations for all the different categories for 2021. Um, I've already put mine in. I may have nominated us. Um, but please feel free to do so. Hey, at least we're going to get one. one. <laughs> yeah, we got to get one plug. Fuck. Absolutely. One vote is all we need. So I've just posted the uh, the link to the um, the nominations in the uh, in the chat. Um, please nominate your favourite distillers. It's a great chance yeah. to put your voice to uh, who you're loving and uh, and who's doing great things for the industry. And so this is our last one for the year. Sorry, Todd, go on. 5th of January to put your nominations in, I think it was? Uh, probably. <laughs> I'm sure that's on the email. I'm sure that's on the email. Uh, I don't know. You get three nominations in each category. It doesn't say in the email when it, when it closes. So get in soon, otherwise you miss your vote. Vote, people, vote. It's your democratic right to vote. <laughs> And have some fun. Have some fun. And have some fun, absolutely. So this is our last episode for 2021. Yep. Uh, we will be back in the new year. Uh, I don't know, Crafty, if you've already got our first one lined up. Yep, Cameron signed. Cameron uh, signs. Yep, Cam's coming on in January, which is going to be pretty awesome. And yeah, then another cracker. And then Mr. Nick Hope, who's actually on the screen now from Dusty yeah. Barrel. Mm. So Dusty Barrel's not been around too long, and it's going to be good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's um, we got some good ones lined up. Yeah, beautiful. Oh, that's great. Well, I hope everybody has a beautiful festive season, and I'll see yes. you all sometime. Thanks, Santa. I've got a chimney. <laughs> I'll be waiting. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks, right. guys. Cheers. Merry Christmas. <laughs>